Welcome to Coffee and Change, a podcast where we talk about change in our lives, our work, and our world, and how we're managing it. On episode six, we talk with Brandon Ray, a graduate student at the University of Washington studying marine and environmental affairs, as well as international studies. Brandon is also a submarine officer for the U.S. Naval Reserve and an undersea enterprise intern at Booz Allen Hamilton. In this episode, we talk about managing change in a volatile space, climate, and the environment. Hi, everybody. My, uh, my name is Brandon Ray. I am a grad student at the University of Washington, uh, concurrent master's programs in, uh, at the Jackson School of International Studies, um, where my focus is actually on general studies, um, and also the School of Marine Environmental Affairs. Um, I am also a Navy Reserve officer. I also work as a defense consultant. I am a husband and a father of two children. Uh, I have no free time, and I enjoy singing in a choir in my non-existent spare time. So there you, you go. And how do we know each other, Brandon? Uh, so Bill and I met uh, at the University of Washington. He was uh, employed there working on change management, and I was involved with the student veterans organization on campus, um, then known as Humvee or Husky United Military Veterans. It has since gone through uh, several rebrandings, Name if you changes, will. Yeah. Um, but that's how we met because um, Bill, as a veteran, uh, wanted to be involved as a sort of staff advisor for the student group. And so um, we also realized in uh, as we talked more that we had more experiences in common, um, both spent time doing exercises in Korea, so um, could relate on all those fronts. Cool. So um, I'd love to talk to you a little bit today about um, not, not just change and managing change, but specifically in the areas that you study and the areas that you work. So you mentioned the, um, the marine environmental affairs and international studies, uh, kind of dual, dual focus in the master's degree. And then you also got a master's degree in atmospheric studies, or excuse me, atmospheric science. Knowing that if you take international studies and environmental affairs... <laughs> And you put those two together right now, you don't have to look very far uh, in either the headlines or turn on the news to know this is kind of right in the crosshairs. Talk to me a little bit about the changes you're seeing in the world versus what you're studying and kind of how it informs uh, your thoughts on it. All right. Uh, I mean, I will, I guess I will caveat this with, uh, um, I, I, I will outright admit that to a certain extent I'm uh, operating under the ostrich syndrome right now where I'm just uh, trying to hide myself from all the changes that are happening in the mm-hmm. world but uh, uh, understanding that those are actually uh, still happening and still very much affecting my future career opportunities so um, I do have at least an ear up mm-hmm. um, so my I guess I'll give, I'll give a little background in terms of why I came to where I came. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I was a submarine officer and, you know, still am, but now on the reserve side, but, um, had always been very interested in the geosciences, um, had the opportunity to deploy up into the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of my jobs as the, you know, on the submarine was to basically take, um, messages we would get about the ice extent and to plot those out so that submarines know where they could surface, you know, should something happen. Right. Um, and, you know, based on the messages that we got and what we would eventually see, um, you know, I saw sort of a disconnect. And so I said, hey, at, the, at least at the operational level, there's sort of a disconnect between what science is predicting and what we're actually seeing. Um, 
Now, flash forward, um, when I was on my shore duty, I was working at a training command for um, the submarine fleet. And oftentimes I would notice that we would have, you know, um, PhD psychologists come in and talk to us about their sort of thoughts on how uh, their research could impact the way that we do our training. So especially in particular with regards to building group dynamics and how you build team cohesion. Um, I often noticed that when the scientists were coming and presenting to us, they were very much uh, talking in their language, which didn't necessarily translate to the military language. Right. But as a military member, you didn't necessarily have the background or expertise in the science to necessarily ask the questions you needed to know. So oftentimes, a lot of the communication was sort of, you know, basically fell on deaf ears, if you will. And so decisions were, to a certain extent, made in absence of the science that would have at least better guided those decisions. Not to say that this was, you know, a complete, like, uh, misfire on the military because they didn't know any better to know what to ask and they weren't being communicated to in a language that they understood. So um, I really saw what my mission in life was to basically work as sort of an intermediary between Mm -hmm. various sectors to basically have expertise in two different sides of things and be able to communicate between the two of those things. Um, So I ended up going to grad school in atmospheric science um, where my research focused on um, statistical methods of improving regional sea ice predicti- prediction in the Arctic. Um, I then, in conversations with our alumni, knowing that I really wanted to focus more on sort of the policy end of things to provide, you know, concrete solutions to some of our societal problems, um, realized that in order to do that, I really needed to sort of rebrand myself as a policy analyst okay. um, and not be a you know PhD scientist who's doing science 330 days of the year mm-hmm. and then possibly helping policy the other 30 days of the year or calling that Christmas. Right. Um, so I then focused or you know shifted my sort of academic career after I finished my master's in atmospheric science into sort of more of the policy realm. So hence the marine and environmental affairs. Um, and the international studies. Um, The nice thing is it was actually somewhat of a seamless transition since as as I'm doing my research right now, it's very much focused on the Arctic still Mm -hmm. and how climate and energy policy is being perceived by various people. And so um, looking at the decision to move from um, oil and gas-based energy in the Arctic to renewable energy, how is that being perceived by the stakeholders? How can coalition building help form um, basically a, a coherent mass to push the decision in one direction or another. Um, obviously, as an environmental person, you can probably guess where I want to push the decision. Um, but then also, why do certain groups have you know more power than others, um, and how do you tr- then translate that to other areas around the world where um, outside the Arctic you don't necessarily have the focus on consensus and cooperation, um, which is sort of unique to Arctic governance right now. Okay. So you, you mentioned um, <clears throat> a word that I think uh, is pretty pretty pivotal in managing change, and that's stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So for someone that this is not their world, right, uh, The either the environmental policy or even some of the politics around this, if I were to ask you, who are the stakeholders? You mentioned the Arctic. 
Um, you know, I've read a little bit about the Arctic Council, mm-hmm. um, which is a group I didn't know about before until you and I talked. Uh, that's made up of nations. Um, when, when, when you say stakeholders in this world, talk a little bit about who, who those would be. Are they, are they heads of state? Are they uh, PhD researchers? Are they all of the above? It's actually sort of an all-of-the-above thing, and that's one of the very unique things about the Arctic um, when it comes to sort of developing Arctic governance. So um, the Arctic Council, as you mentioned, um, is a intergovernmental forum um, which is comprised of eight member states. So you have the United States, you have Russia, you have Canada, you have Denmark via Greenland, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Iceland, um, which all have territory above the Arctic Circle. Um, so they are ultimately the ones that have the decision-making authority within this organization. Um, now, that being said, um, the Arctic Council is very unique in the fact that um, the indigenous groups in the Arctic are elevated to a status of almost near nation-state level. Mm-hmm. So um, they sit at the same table as all the nation-states. Um, they don't necessarily have a decision-making authority, but that being said, um, their voice is very much heard, and if they are not happy with the way things are going, that has a fairly substantial sway in terms of how decisions are made, um, which is actually very unique compared to the way most other sort of intergovernmental organizations or forum fora work. Right. Um, in addition to that, you also have a number of observers, um, and now the observers can be non-Arctic nation states, um, such as China, Japan, Korea, Italy, etc. Um, you have um, intergovernmental organizations and non-governmental organizations, so like the World Wildlife Fund. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing with that is that you have sort of China and the World Wildlife Fund who have the exact same status in this organization, right. and um, which is sort of unique, especially when you consider most other intergovernmental organizations where the nation state is always superior and observers, uh, as far as I know of, are, are never nation states. So it's sort of a very unique dynamic that you have there. Um, now, the Arctic Council, um, you know, while I said they're decision makers, a lot of what they do is they um, basically do research and put out scientific reports to help guide decision making mm-hmm. and then provide sort of the um, the OQE or the objective qualifying evidence, if you will, um, for nation states to use in terms of implementing the policies. So okay. um, the nation states um, in the Arctic Council will agree on sort of whatever they think is the right direction, but at the same time, it's then up to the individual nations to sort of implement that. So it's basically saying, hey, we're going to agree on this, and then we're going to work collaboratively to provide all the evidence that we need to then go and try to sell this at home mm-hmm. to our country and say this is a really good idea and here's all the reasons why we think it's a good idea. So that's that that aspect of bringing it home, right? You just you, you mentioned eight different countries. Yes, those are eight different cultures. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, sort of an intergovernmental body making the recommendations. Um, how does it work when you bring it back to a country and you've got to go through then the lens of culture? So you've got to do translation upon translation to probably implement, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the nice thing is because, or well, I guess well, I'll start with the nice thing is that because you have all these, um, the nation states are very much involved in the decision. And so, for example, in the United States, you know, our minister that we have, um, 
the, the person who represents the United States minister is Secretary of State. Um, and so at the last um, ministerial meeting in Fairbanks uh, this past May uh, was Rex Tillerson. Mm-hmm. Um, previously uh, had been John Kerry and then um, Hillary Clinton before that. Um, you have a high-level person within the State Department who is basically at these meetings, hears everything that's going on, and then can then as the head of the State Department, mm-hmm. really helps drive those issues. Okay. Um, below the ministerial level, a lot of the work is done at sort of the senior Arctic official level, um, which is usually someone of a fairly high level in some sort of governmental department. So for the United States, it's uh, Julia Gorley, who works for the Department of State as well, okay. um, in their, um, I believe, ocean and polar affairs sector. Um, but her you know, responsibility is to coordinate with all the other Arctic nations to basically drive the agenda over the two years during the chairmanship until they have another ministerial meeting where the Secretary of State would come again. Okay. Um, and granted, it doesn't have to be the Secretary of State, but it has been so since at least 2011. Okay, so they've got, they've got the mechanisms in place to kind of bring that through um, you know, decision-making all the way through. Yeah. The the issue then becomes, well, great, so the Secretary of State has said this is where we want to go with this. It's then, you know, coming back and actually making it a law right. outside of just the Secretary of State's, you know, dicta that this these are the things that we want to cover, and then implementing that or finding the funds in Congress or anything else. And, and know, that's where politics comes in. Exactly. That's where probably there are things outside of any intergovernmental mm-hmm. bodies' control. Yes. Um, I recently read this article from my alma mater's engineering magazine that talked about what they called the conundrums of climate change, and, and it was rooted in the... The argument that um, a lot of discussions start in a place of uncertainty. So um, there are scientists involved, there are politicians involved in these in in some of the groups that you've mentioned. Um, when it comes to climate change, do you feel that there is still a lot of uncertainty, or that discussions start in uncertainty? And if so, um, how do you change that? I mean, I will say. There is always uncertainty in everything that we do. Um, even, you know, in research, there is, you know, you have bounds on what you're able to say based on your research. And so there is some error, uh, you know, some margin of uncertainty that, you know, d- dictates, you know, to what extent will you. I mean, I think given, you know, the last five um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports that we've had come out, I think we have a... I, I, I would almost say bulletproof case that climate change is happening right. um, and that it's caused by mankind or at least uh, abetted by mankind, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, that being said, where you get into the uncertainty is to what extent. Yeah. So, you know, what? how far is this going to go? And that's something that we still don't know. But that's a lot of our research is driven at trying to figure out, well, to what extent you know, can we say with any sort of certainty this is going to happen? Um, Now, where, you know, you run into sort of the uh, frustrations, if you will, is the fact that, you know, oftentimes decision makers, politicians, et cetera, um, need to base their decisions on levels of certainty. Um, And, you know, you throw at them and say, hey, this is what we think. Plus or minus, you know, five years, or plus or minus five degrees, or plus or minus five whatever, and they're like, "Well, that's that's not good enough. I it's need to know. Sell. Yeah. I know. I need to know an exact answer." And you're like, "Oh, I I can't tell you that because right. no one can tell you that, or you know, if they are going to tell you that, they're they're lying." Right. Um, 
I mean, not lying per se, but, um, you know, and that's where you, you run into these things, but there's, I'm one of the really interesting things and that I, you know, I had to struggle this with this when I was first, you know, becoming involved in clients, climate science, especially after having been in the military for so long is how do you quantify and how do you discuss uncertainty? Because it's not really a very innate concept to us as human beings, you know, you, you recognize that, yeah, sure, there's wiggle room in sort of everything, but it's not something that's consciously there and not something that you necessarily plan around. Um, that being said, I mean, I guess my recommendation was take your worst case scenario and you know, base everything on that. And that there. Yeah. if you, you know, if it happens not to be that worst case scenario, then great. You've, you know, saved yourself a whole bunch of money or a whole bunch of hassle. Right. Um, but, you know, if you, you know, don't fail conservatively, if we will, mm-hmm. um, then you're sort of up a creek without a paddle. Yeah. Okay. Um, so as uh, we're kind of, we're kind of coming to, uh, to, towards the end here, tell me a little bit about you recently, um, you mentioned you started an internship and I believe, I believe in the title is undersea in, in, um, in the title. Talk a little bit about the internship that you're doing. And then, um, lastly, if we were to say kind of some of the stuff you're coming up on in 2018, you're, you're graduating out of this program. Um, so what are some of the things that you're really excited about for next year? Um, and what are some of the things you're probably a little bit hesitant about for next year? So, uh, the undersea enterprise intern. So I, uh, work with a, uh, defense consultant, uh, at Booz Allen Hamilton. Um, and I really sort of lucked into this position. Um, I had been, so as a Navy Reserve officer, um, this past summer I was, or, well, I guess summer 2016, um, since it's technically now summer as of solstice today. Yeah. Um, I was on extended active duty orders with an organization that does unmanned undersea vehicles for the submarine force. Um, and so basically doing the research development, testing, and, um, Evaluation of how these vehicles could be used by our submarines or in lieu of submarines, et cetera, and um, how do we improve on the technology to really meet sort of the needs of the Navy. Okay. Um, and so while I was there, I had the opportunity to um, meet uh, the guy who is now my boss um, who had basically developed a um, sort of a – virtual reality, augmented reality um, simulation that helps you see in three dimensions the undersea environment. And so um, basically takes all the sensors that we have and tries to fuse them to give you sort of a 3D picture of what is going to be happening around you uh, to really improve upon the fact that, you know, as when you're on a submarine, all of your screens are all two-dimensional. Right. You don't really necessarily get the best sense of what is actually happening because, you know, we obviously see and exist in 3D, but, you know, it's sometimes very hard to translate 2D things to a 3D setting. Um, So that was one of the technologies that they had been working on. Um, You know, I had had a conversation with him. Turned out, you know, he found out that I was coming back to the University of Washington to continue working on my graduate education. Mm -hmm. Um, They were looking for someone who could be the on-campus representative for a lot of the projects they were doing and also continue helping to work in this sort of undersea enterprise as well. So um, it just happened to be very fortuitous that I was able to get involved. But, um, you know, part of it was really interesting in that, 
you know, I could continue doing some of the skills and some of the, you know, knowledge that, you know, use the knowledge that I had gained, you know, throughout my career as a submarine officer to help um, improve and uh, build upon some of the work that they had been doing around um, this sort of understand enterprise um, concept. And then also um, give them a way to help uh, improve their relationships with the University of Washington campus as well. Okay. Um, and so, you know, it's been a, a wonderful experience um, to work through them and continue to grow as a person and, you know, get myself um, more well-versed in areas that I didn't previously know, like government contracting. Let yeah. me tell you how exciting that is. <laughs> I could tell you all about that. Um, <laughs> But you know it's it you know and, and that's I mean that's the nice thing is it's it's a learning experience for me and I you know I'm able to use my skills to help build on you know what we're trying to do with this undersea enterprise so sure um, you know it's I think it's been very mutually beneficial for um, myself and for the company as well so and thinking about your um, graduating next year so it's next spring yeah is that right? I know yeah. it doesn't seem that far away but no no but i I suppose after five years and three master's degrees uh it's got to come to an end it's got to come to an end (laughs) as much as i would love to just you know sort of hang on forever um no i mean i think that's uh very much the exciting thing right now um i i actually don't know what's going to happen after this um you know it's uh the world is sort of my oyster and that was sort of the way i designed it Mm -hmm. um uh, yeah, I really don't know what's going to happen next, and that's both terrifying and amazing at the same time. Um, I will say that my wife, having been a military spouse for a number of years, is uh, has already said, "All right, well, we've we've been here long enough. When are we moving? When are again? we moving? Yeah, when are we moving? <laughs> when are again? we packing?" <laughs> um, so you know, I also have to weigh that with the fact that you know her entire family's here, and yeah. you know, now that there are grandchildren in the mix, you yeah. know, that may not be in the grandparents' best interest, right. or you know. Maybe, you know, maybe she really wants to get away from the grandparents, which is entirely possible. But um, I think a lot of it will be based on where I can get a job Mm -hmm. and doing what I want to do. You know, obviously, I'd be very excited to stay with um, Booz Allen and continue to do my work in the undersea enterprise. Um, It would be not anything related to what I'm doing in grad school. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's also something I have to weigh um, in terms of what I would like to do. Um, I mean, ideally, I would love to work in Arctic and Arctic climate and energy policy, but mm-hmm. um, you know, given the way government hiring practices have been lately, that yeah. uh, may not be the most. Uh, and that's also probably a pretty narrow field, I would imagine. It's it it is very true, but you know, at the same time, it's um, it's. I haven't, like, closed off the aperture to other avenues yeah. of doing that. So it's not just – the government is not the only stakeholder, if you will, in Correct. this process. Yeah, so, um, you know, whether it's working for NGOs mm-hmm. or working for other governments right. or, you know – Or maybe even the people that develop the technology for the uh, augmented reality or the virtual reality. Exactly. Or so, I mean, it, so. I, I don't know. I, I, I like a lot of things in life, and I feel like I've tried to, you know – make myself as well-rounded as possible. And, you know, the nice thing about that is that I have all the options in the world. And the scary thing about that is I have all the, the options, options in the world. world. Absolutely. Um, well, I mean, some some options are off the table, but that's okay. Well, good. Well, thank you for um, the time today. Um, best of luck. I hope to have you back in the future okay. when you're probably running some foundation or sitting on a council or 
Uh, maybe I can even dream big. I mean, maybe I could even say, what if we did a podcast in a submarine? That would be pretty awesome. That, that would be probably phenomenal and I'd probably have possibly to, illegal. But Yeah, I'd probably have to get some <laughs> additional clearances for that. But sure. thank you for your time, Brandon. Thank you very much, Bill. Really appreciate it. My pleasure.